0: This is chatter i'm david priest this week professor and writer ethan shiner on the olympics politics and security
1: china had promised to improve human rights and by 2008 none of its promises had been carried through and so if anything it seemed that china learned from that experience that we don't have to do anything There's such a rich tradition of this now, which a lot of people are offended by. But this is the place where a lot of people have really made big statements about politics.
0: Ethan, thanks for joining me on Chatter.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This this sounds really fun.
0: Now, we're, we're going to be talking about the Olympics primarily, but we're going to be talking about the intersection of politics and national security and sports. And you're here to talk about that, and that might be strange to some people who know you from what I'll call your first career, uh, not not your dancing career, your true first <laughs> term, but your first professional career, because you are a scholar of Japanese politics and comparative politics, the author of Democracy Without Competition in Japan, about opposition failure in a one-party dominant state. So- Explain to all of the listeners why it is that I am talking to you about the intersection of politics and sports. How did you get into that?
1: Yeah, this is funny. I, I Recently, uh, when when Japan scholars have been meeting at conferences and they run into my some of my students, they say, wait, what happened to Ethan? He's writing a book about hockey in Czechoslovakia. It it really confuses the (laughs) Japan world. Um, it really, I mean, it was was completely unexpected on my part, uh, but it really happened about, I would say, roughly six or seven years ago when my department was interested in coming up with new courses, just that students might find interesting. And I've always spent a lot of time thinking about ways to, you know, Ways of creating hooks uh, for students. I, I think a lot sure. about teaching, and sports was always an easy angle as a way of you know sucking in students who might you know it might be a way of getting them interested in something. And so, as I thought about it more, I, you know, I realized that I could tell the story of politics in the U.S. politics in the world more generally, especially during the Cold War, by weaving in stories of sports intersecting with politics. So that, that's how it started. You know, this is about six seven eight years ago but as i start prepping the class the world of sports becomes this i mean it becomes a really different world than from what it had been before it it, you start seeing this politicization especially of american sports Mm -hmm. and so you know there's a long history of, of an intersection between sports and politics in the u.s but especially over the last decade with colin kaepernick uh, really LeBron James. Le- I mean, it's it's right. it's hard. It's hard. You know, people, you know, it is actually hard to overstate just how political and involved LeBron James has been. But then also things like the dramatic movements of 2020. Uh, the 20 teens just became this unique period in our history where a number of high profile athletes became more outspoken, more politically active than ever before. I mean, really only the late 1960s matches up even closely to recent years. So, so those are things here in the U.S. But most of all, I, I sort of became a political sports guy. I mean, I actually really started thinking that way. Um, I want to I say it's where my personal met the political um, because of the shift in recent years toward greater authoritarianism mm-hmm. around the globe and leanings towards it, even in the United States. And so, I mean, my worry about this shift is something that genuinely keeps me up at night. You know, I, we, we had, we had, Um, been so thrilled by the end of the Cold War. And now part of my fear is that it seems we've forgotten how truly terrifying the authoritarian regimes of the Cold War were. Mm -hmm. And so I want us to see with clear eyes what a loss of democracy, what a rise in authoritarianism really means. So even for people who find talk of politics being, you know, quote-unquote, boring Stories about athletes and sports under these regimes, the the authoritarian regimes, leaves this really undeniable imprint on us. I mean, these stories-
0: it's like it's a gateway drug for students and the general public to to get into these discussions that they might not otherwise find themselves exactly, in.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, they really shine a bright light in a way that really, I, I think gateway drug is is a good way of thinking of because then they, they sit there, they hear the story about the sports, and then they say, oh, perhaps I want to know more. Yeah. And, but, you know, one piece to it that's really kind of wonderful, revisiting these stories isn't always necessarily completely depressing either, you know, of just pure oppression. I mean, a number of these stories are truly inspirational. I mean, they show us brave athletes mm-hmm. who push back against authoritarian regimes. So it's for all of those reasons that this really became the, the the intersection of politics and sports for me just became a real obsession.
0: And even the the domestic side, right? The We have the case, the famous case is probably Muhammad Ali, uh, somebody who was prominent and made his political views known. But so many other major athletes simply didn't. And we are old enough to remember this guy called Michael Jordan, who in the 1990s was called upon to take a stand in among other places, his native North Carolina in the Senate race, uh, where I believe Jesse Helms was running for reelection at the time. And People said, "Well, why why aren't you speaking out on behalf of of his opponent?" And he said yes. something like, "Republicans buy tennis shoes too."
1: It's Republican, yeah, <laughs>
0: Republicans buy
1: shoes or Republicans yeah. buy sneakers as well, right? Yes.
0: And and he's not wrong. Um, if if you're an entertainer, which most sports figures are, uh, you're an entertainer. You you do want to keep your audience. On the other hand, he had people listening to him. Unlike anyone else, and could he have made a difference in something that he will admit did matter to him? Um, that there's a tension there that he resolved one way, whereas in recent years we've seen many more athletes resolving that by going the other way. There is a absolutely. shift there,
1: absolutely, absolutely, and and it's I mean it's fascinating with Jordan. I mean uh, it's actually kind of difficult to imagine somebody, a, a high-profile athlete, taking the Jordan position today. Mm-hmm. That's become, over the past few years, that's become something that's really frowned upon. Um, but you even have, I mean, Jordan's teammate, um, you know, a, a three-point champion uh, you know in, in the all-star uh, three-point shooting contest actually brought to the white house when the bulls went to the white house he brought uh, a list of issues that were of him um, political issues that were of importance to him mm-hmm. he soon found that he was out of the league uh, you had another mm-hmm. uh, a terrific player uh, mahmoud abdul raouf mm-hmm. around the same time as michael jordan who um, was Muslim and felt very uncomfortable with the American Anthem, the the national Anthem played before games, and he really avoided being a part of it and got in big trouble. Um, And, you know, we've certainly had the example of Colin Kaepernick in recent years, essentially nobody will hire him now to play football, Um, but you don't have the Jordan situation and you don't uh, in general have the Mm -hmm. backlash uh, that we saw in the 1990s, it's become much more acceptable,
0: right? And yet we we still have we still have clashes, right? In the NBA, we have many players who don't want to speak out against China, and then you have uh, who is it? Uh, Ennis, can't remember his name now. Oh, Ennis Cantor, Ennis Cantor, uh, the Boston Celtics, who is speaking out about the the Uyghurs uh, in in um, in the West and their their treatment. So, yeah, these issues continue, and they still continue to be choices, and w- which political and social topics do you choose to weigh in on and which ones do you not is is still an issue for so many so many athletes
1: and uh, and and a really interesting you know spin from from what you just you brought up so daryl morey who at the time Mm. I, i believe he was still uh the top executive with the houston rockets nba team at the time um sent you know tweeted out something about human rights in hong kong and quickly found that LeBron James uh, leveled at Daryl Moore the type of thing that you know many pundits had been leveling at LeBron James, which was, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you are not educated on this issue. Right. You shouldn't be talking about issues of human rights in China. So, I mean, we even have these high profile debates even occurring between different people in the sports world.
0: The whole um, stick to sports that some people <laughs> don't want to hear their athletes <laughs> taking political views. Well, in that case... Political scientists like you and me can say, "Well, the rest of you shouldn't be talking politics, right?" <laughs> it, it kind of makes no sense at that point. Absolutely, um, we're we're doing this episode as the Olympic Games are beginning in uh, Beijing yet again, uh, relatively recently. Right, exactly on uh, on their last hosting, which it we'll seems we'll like, probably... it
1: feels like it was just 14 years ago.
0: I know, and the pollution has only doubled since then. Uh, yes. um, so we'll, we'll probably. Um, talk a little bit about that as we, as we get through this conversation, but I I do want to set the stage a bit or more accurately, have you set the stage a bit because we, I will say we collectively um, thinking of just the general public uh, listening to stories about the Olympics or paying attention every few years to some of the personalities and some of the events, but not really understanding the full course of Olympic history and how it developed and why why it is the way it is and how we got to where we are today. Uh I certainly don't have a full sense of that even though I've been trying to brush up on this history myself. But you do have that full history because you have been researching and writing about sports and politics uh including the Washington Post, I believe Politico and other places as well. So let's go back to the origins of the modern Olympics and the, the central role of Pierre de Coubertin, who was, was building on, among other things, some myths about the ancient Greek games. And what, how did that develop? How did we get the reinstitution of the Olympic Games in the, the very end of the 19th century?
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it's really, it's really something. I mean, it, it, from the very beginning of our modern games, we have something akin to politics ultimately driving the creation of these modern games. So uh, Pierre de Coubertin was a French baron, um, and he had been deeply disturbed by France's loss in the 1870 to 1871 Franco-Prussian War. And he actually blamed, he, he said, France was I mean, he felt that France had been humiliated and he, he blamed that humiliation on what he called the moral and physical decline of its youth. And so he had this idea that, OK, if we have something like an Olympics, what it's going to do is it's going to encourage young Frenchmen to stop loafing. And, and they're going to do... just
0: had better javelin throwers. We would have, <laughs> exactly. We would have fended off those Prussians
1: exactly and i mean he talked you know i want them running i want them swimming i want them shooting because you know shooting was also part of early thinking with with um olympic um, competitions and so really his number one hope he just wanted the french to be less easy prey for the germans that really was at its core his a bit, big well. idea um by the way I, and so you know he ultimately got this thing started mm-hmm. and it you know back in athens where the games had originally um you know, had started in the ancient games. By the way, fun fact, um, de Coubertin, uh in 1912 actually designed the Olympic symbol oh. uh, to, to stand for what he, what he did. So we've got the, you know, the five interlocking the colored rings, rings, right? Yeah. Well, so there are six colors if you include the white background. Huh. And these six colors are all the colors that, appe- these colors all appeared on all of the national flags of the countries that competed in the Olympics in 1912. So it had that kind of symbolism.
0: Okay. Is that... Is that something that continues to this day? Or I thought the rings were supposed to symbolize the continents or something.
1: Yeah, they've got all that kind of thing in there. But originally, I mean, today, I mean, so especially now that you've got lots of African countries that have these really, you know, beautiful multicolored flags, things look quite different now. You'd have to, you'd need a lot more rings or partially, you know, like break the rings up into different colors. Uh, It would look quite
0: different. You raise a good point, which is Decoubertin pulls together these games and in, in Athens, and then in various ways in the, the years after. But it's not until probably 1912-ish that you start to get outside of just a very pure Western European center that a lot of the competing countries, it's a very elitist event, not only in terms of the countries that do participate, uh, but in terms of yeah. the athletes themselves in, in many cases. And Many continents aren't even represented until right before the First World War. It's a very different games than we, we see it now, almost as a showcase of nations.
1: Absolutely. No, it, it was, I mean, it was not terribly diverse to start off. I mean, it, it was, I mean, certainly in 1896, it was, it really was um, outside of the U.S. I, I, off the top, I guess it was the U.S. and Australia, I believe were, oh, no, you know what? There's also Chile. I forgot about Chile. Yeah. So you had in the original Olympics outside of, of Europe, you had the United States, Australia and Chile.
0: But Australia but otherwise, is a funny <laughs> one because, I mean, the the United Kingdom was was an empire, right? The British Empire was still kind of a big thing then. And yeah. so in a lot of those early games, you would have this, this tension, which... I think in many ways has carried forward into the modern era yes. with, okay, who gets to participate and what flag do they come under? Because you have South African athletes and Canadian athletes and yes. Irish athletes, and they're, they're all British. And some of them are forced to go under the Union Jack and some of them are allowed to have their own flag and their own team, even though they're a dominion. It yes. seems to me awfully complicated to just figure out who can actually have a team. No, that's that's
1: exactly right. I mean, and this is this is something that people have had difficulty with throughout the process. Um, there have been negotiations when you have a East and a West Germany, um, when you have a North and a South Korea. I mean, then you get into all sorts of type, uh, all sorts of issues with uh, mainland China and Taiwan. But I mean, if you go all the way back to 1906, I mean, you have a really interesting case involving Britain and, you know, divided flags in essence, and divided senses of where a person comes from. So uh, they, they briefly, they, the IOC briefly had, had an experiment where they, essentially some people, especially the Greeks, had said, you know what, we should get to host the Olympics all the time.
0: Well, there is, and, there is some history there, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. We used to do it, so why can't we do it again? I mean, it used to be, we, it was much more complicated back in ancient times. Uh de Coubertin wanted there to be different countries hosting the Olympics every four years. Um, so the IOC and Athens, though, worked out this deal where they, uh, they came up with something called the Intercalated Games. I'd never even heard the word intercalated before um, I'd actually heard about this. And so the idea was every four non-leap year, even years, Athens was going to host this intercalated Olympics. And uh, they ended up, it became actually far too complicated after 1906, but they did it in 1906. And you get this incredible, you get the first really famous uh, protest where uh, the, um, Great Britain, was, uh, it was Well, you had the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland back in those days. And if you were Irish and you wanted to compete in the Olympics, you had to compete for, well, that United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And there was this gentleman by the name of Peter O'Connor who on the, the island there, he, he, was, he was from Ireland and he considered the place he was from an independent country. And because of this, he refused to compete for the UK in the 1900 Paris Olympics. But eventually, he says, "Okay, fine, I'll go to this 1906 intercalated thing in Athens." And he, he and his Irish teammates, uh, a couple of them, there were I think there were three altogether, including him. They end up wearing green to distinguish themselves <laughs> from their British teammates. That's not subtle. Yeah, it's not subtle at all, and um, he thinks he's won the long jump, and he, the judging the judges declare a foul, and he insists that it was due to bias. It was an English, it was an English judge, an American judge. He ends up taking the silver, but so he goes to the medal stand, or he goes, or rather, he goes to receive his medal, and they always put up the flags when you're you're getting your medal, when the the the, the various medalists are getting them, and the Union Jack starts getting raised. And he wants none of this. So he goes and he actually climbs up the flagpole to wave around the green flag of Ireland instead. Wow. And later on in the competition, he ends up winning the triple jump and and one of his Irish teammates wins the silver. And they ask the officials to raise Irish flags. They they won't. So the men go parading around the stadium with their green Irish flags.
0: And this is before obviously, uh, television coverage, broadcasting this exactly. around the world, but but word got around. That is, if people hadn't thought of these games as an opportunity to speak out for a political cause or create some kind of a security challenge for the organizers, now, now the seed was planted.
1: Absolutely. And there's such a rich tradition of this yeah. now, which a lot of people are offended by, but this is the place where a lot of people have really, uh, uh, you know, Made big statements about yeah. politics. Yeah, absolutely. The,
0: when you talk about political statements at the Olympics, most people probably the earliest thing they would go to is is not this 1906. No, not so related. Yeah, that, that's. <laughs> not, I, I think you just made it up, but they would probably go to the the intersection of you know World War and everything that that seemed to play out in 1936. Berlin. So Mm -hmm. Berlin, Berlin finally gets the games. And of course, by then Hitler is in power and there's a whole lot of attention being paid more so than I think we realize now to the idea of boycotting the games. Should, should countries even go given the Nazi policies towards, well, basically anyone not, not seen as of the Aryan race, right? So talk to us about how that how that developed, how the potential boycotts were discussed, what the security issues were at the games, and then, and then what happened at the games themselves beyond the, the one image I think people have is this idea of Jesse Owens sticking it to Hitler by winning. Exactly. But the story, exactly. the story goes a little bit deeper than that
1: yeah the, and, and I will tell you this is I mean there are so this is one of the richest stories. Um, and actually, there's a, a really terrific book uh, by Andrew Marinus, who writes um, he, he writes, I, I guess we'd call them young adult books about the intersection between social issues and sports. They're, they're really terrific. and he's written a book called Games of Deception about the 1936 Berlin Olympics, specifically about basketball. Basketball was played for the first time in those games. Um, so I, I really recommend people check out Andrew's book. Again, it's Games of Deception. Um, one of the things about the games that people tend to miss is Berlin was chosen in 1931 to host the games. So when, when the IOC selected Berlin, this is, the Nazis weren't really in power yet. And what was especially important here is it was really down to two two cities. And this is another thing that people miss is it's not entirely um about awarding Olympics to a country. They they're very much focused on cities a lot of times. And so when when the IOC says we shouldn't do we shouldn't have a boycott here or there shouldn't be boycotts here, their argument is look, we, we've allocated the games uh to a city, not this country. So why are we punishing the country? Right. So but it's, anyway.
0: not, it's not seen as a Um, as some kind of affirmation of government policy, it's seen as shining a spotlight on on the municipality,
1: which allows them
0: to avoid, uh, quite honestly, it just helps them to avoid some of these tough political questions.
1: Exactly. Right. Um, And so the IOC chose Berlin over Barcelona, now, Barcelona in 1931, I mean, or rather Spain in 1931, was just entering this, this period of real instability, uh, and it was on the march to what was ultimately the Spanish Civil War. So in 1931, Berlin was a super safe bet compared to Barcelona. Well, eventually, <laughs> the, you know, not too long thereafter, the Nazis come to power, and the Nazis actually don't even want to host the games. They want no part of this. They start making all these racist statements. Uh, they, they include a statement that the Olympics would be constructed on the backs of the German people. Mm. And that you've got all these, you know, in their views, you know, disgusting races coming over here when it's the Germans who built this beautiful thing. And Hitler himself didn't want to host the Olympics. Well, okay. In, in, with a clear, in, as part of a pattern that we clearly see frequently in the future... Joseph Goebbels, minister of propaganda, recognizes, hey,
0: There's an opportunity here. Exactly.
1: There's a huge, basically hosting can be incredibly useful. And so the idea was under the Nazi regime, you didn't train for yourself. First of all, you trained for the sake of the glory of the country. So if you become a great athlete and do well, you are doing right by the Nazis and for Germany. But especially, too, Goebbels was sitting there saying, look, the Olympics would be this great chance to distract the world from the negative attention it was receiving because of its horrible treatment of, of Jews. Right. And so, you know, throughout the previous four, you know, three, four years, I mean, this is where we see all sorts of... Uh, terrifying discrimination and oppression against Jews in Germany. And so the idea then is uh, Germany could use and Nazi, the Nazis could use the games to show how respectable Germany was, show how successful. I mean, and this is another pattern in the future. We see this all the time. And this is something that uh, the, there was, we'll talk probably more about boycotts later, but the Soviet Union was very unhappy to have the games boycotted in nineteen eighty in Moscow, because it was a chance to show what a beautiful city it was. Well, same thing, 1936, this is a chance for the Germans to show what an incredible capital they have, how beautiful the country is, their incredible economy, people, the athletics. And so it was a way to, you know, basically force the world to bestow legitimacy on Germany. So that's kind of the backdrop. By the way, uh, another sort of fun story in all of this is Uh, you know, people know that Hitler fancied himself an artist. He also fancied himself an architect. Um, and so he designed his own homes, uh, he government buildings. He even drew the blueprint for the bunker in which he ultimately killed himself at the end of world war II. Well, he wants this incredible brand new stadium Mm -hmm. that's going to hold a hundred thousand people for the Berlin Olympics. And he's super proud of this idea. And so architects bring him this this plan for a really modern stadium with big glass panels. And Hitler throws a tantrum, basically. (laughs) He just loses it. He says, (laughs) he's going to cancel the Berlin Olympics because this thing they put together is so disgusting. Hmm. And so overnight, the planners come up with a new sketch, and it's out of natural stone. It's something akin to what the Greeks or the Romans would have used, but it's even more massive. And so this is very much, you know, hearkening back. This is something the 36 games do quite a bit. They hearken back to this tradition. Uh, that the the torch ceremony is introduced for the first time in 1936, mm. taking that back to the Athens game. They even have the torch relay where the torch is brought from Athens all the way to Berlin. Well, Hitler loves this whole concept. And this, is, this kind of gives a glimpse into really the terrifying and uh, huge aims that Hitler has, he comes up with a bigger plan for the future as well. Mm-hmm. So the, it was understood that it, it, Tokyo was going to host the 1940 Olympics. Right. Um, but Hitler says, okay, cool, Tokyo, you host the 40 games. But what we're going to do is we're going to build a new stadium after the Berlin Games that will hold 405,000 people and we're going to hold all of the Olympics I'm after guessing,
0: 1940. I'm guessing that there were no stadiums, stadia, I don't know, <laughs> stadiums, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that were anywhere close to that Ooh. at the time, right? I, I mean, is there one now? I don't I think mean, so. You can get over 100,000 into several stadiums. Uh, easily, Absolutely, well world, over 100. You know, uh, maybe, I don't know, some of the biggest one, but you know, nothing even approaching. So I'm imagining then no. that that would have been even more outrageous. Exactly. I, I mean, it really gives you a glimpse.
1: I mean, I, I think more than most things you could have seen at the time, uh, this really is a, a window into just what Hitler was thinking. If they're going to be hosting all the Olympics, it means they're the center of the universe. It means yeah. they've probably taken over every place and 405,000 people. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate megalomania too. I mean, this right. is all eyes will be on him welcoming everybody there.
0: Right. Um, so that's a it's, pretty it's, it's, quick, that's a pretty quick turn from, we don't want to host the games and yeah. <laughs> have all of these undesirables come to, we are going to make this the center of the sporting universe, because in their minds, Germany will be the center of the universe by, by then anyway. Exactly. Um, but then they actually have to play the games. So when they do the athletic competition, yeah. uh, in the, in American collective cultural memory, it's boy, did Jesse Owens stick it to Hitler. He, he showed Hitler that his views about race were wrong because Jesse Owens did such a good job. But yeah. there, there's, there's a little bit more going on in 1936, right? No, that's
1: exactly right. Um, so we, we remember, I mean, this is the story we remember, is that exactly Jesse Owens showed Hitler that his views were wrong. And in fact, Hitler and Goebbels were enraged by the victory of Owens and by other african American athletes in those games, I mean just furious, and there was some language uh, Goebbels used in uh, in his diary, and that other Germans at the time pointed to they referred to uh the, the african American athletes as auxiliaries, so they weren't really they weren't really Americans. Wow! and in fact you know they, they used language to suggest that they considered, uh, the black athletes sort of subhuman. So it was, you know, the implication on their part is, well, you, you, you have this, you cheated, you brought in, you know, non-humans in a sense into this. Hmm. Um, so there, there's that part. So there's the lesson is not entirely drawn on that side, but the big thing that certainly, you know, my students comment on this whenever I teach the 1936 games, you know, they talk about what they learned in high school was, Jesse Owens showed Hitler, you know that gee, the Aryans are not dominant. Well, okay, in 1932, the United States had been by far the dominant team in the 19, in the Los Angeles games. Now not, uh, there was actually limited outside participation in those games. Um, so it, it was the whole world wasn't coming over in 1932. But be that as it may. Germany in the 1936 games completely dominated the the medal podium. Uh, Germany won nine more gold medals than the United States and 33 more medals total than the United States. I mean, Germany absolutely dominated those games, and that's something that we've forgotten in large part because, you know, uh, the victors get to you know, define history, right. and since we won, since we won World War II, we get to define what happened in the thirty-six games. That's a good point.
0: That's a good point. Now, we we mentioned earlier the the British Empire, but there were other empires here, and I think in nineteen thirty-six there was an issue because the Japanese had been expanding their empire, and wasn't there some clash over some some athletes uh, that were competing under the Japanese flag? Yes, this was um this is one of those um really powerful,
1: um very painful, but also uh one of these stories that, you know, I, I said there were there were pieces to these stories that were sort of uplifting. I mean, in, in a way, this is one of those as well. Um so Japan had formally annexed Korea in nineteen ten. So I mean, Japan was controlling Korea. <laughs> and um, there were plenty of people in Korea who had you know who who had never seen a Korean flag before um, when the nineteen thirty six games roll around, you know th- that kind of thing, the Japanese were imposing the sense on Korea that you are Japanese. well, it ter- and and by the way, if you wanted to compete in the nineteen thirty six games and you were Korean, well, you had to essentially say that you were Japanese. You were going to wear the Japanese um, um, uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were uh, going to have to take on Japanese names. Oof. Um, and so there was the the greatest marathon runner in the world at the time was a Korean gentleman. A family name was Sohn. So Son Ki-chung was his name. And Sohn goes off to, uh, to the Olympics in, in Berlin, and he's forced to take on the Japanese name Son-Kite, um, you know, a different way of writing the name and different, you know, uh, fa- uh, different first name. And he goes and he wins the marathon. And in fact, uh, one of his teammates uh, takes the bronze medal Again, they're they're forced to run under the Japanese flag and name. And so there's this really moving picture of these two men accepting their medals or listening to the Japanese national anthem wearing Japanese uniforms. And Son is, I mean, this is this is one of these clever little things that people have found a way to do. Uh, in the Olympics, he's holding a little a baby oak tree to his chest. Hmm. And what he's doing with it is and his teammate, the, the bronze medalist later said that he was really envious that his teammate had done this. Well, because he's holding the oak tree to cover the Japanese uh, wow. insignia. Now, meanwhile, the two of them, the two Korean men, are looking down, and they they called it this is in what they call um, silent shame and outrage. They're so devastated hmm. by what they're having to do here, um, and I mean, it's they, they're crushed that they have to do this as part of being Japanese. Now, I will say, um, in sort of a lovely spin, um, precisely fifty years later, he goes uh, Son goes to a ceremony in the united states where uh there's there's a monument there to olympic marathon winners and they formally change the name and nationality of sone so exactly 50 years later and really cool thing in the 1988 games in seoul Sean actually carries the torch into the Mm -hmm. stadium for the opening ceremony and he gets this standing ovation from eighty thousand people there so there's that beautiful moment but Again, these are <laughs> these are fifty years Long later, to get there. and yeah. this is very much about uh, the, right. the politics of the time.
0: Well, you, you you talked about the tension in the the Nazi government of Germany about whether to host the games and right. even to participate at some level in the games, but that played out on a much bigger scale with the Soviet Union because the the Soviet Union, you know, obviously could have participated in the games after. The, the communists took over. But for decades, they were very hesitant to, and it was really only after World War II and a bit after that, that the Soviets actually realized what the Germans realized over the course of just a few right. months or years in 1936, which is, well, wait a minute, by not participating, <laughs> maybe we're not getting the propaganda value on the international stage. Maybe maybe we're not taking advantage for national security purposes of what international sport can bring us. Talk about that evolution in Soviet thinking and then how they took advantage of that. I think largely in the 1950s to show that, yeah, we're going to jump right in.
1: Yeah. The, the Soviets really uh, put the lie to the notion that there's no politics in sports. Um, I mean, it, it was really fascinating. So the Soviets, um, I mean, when they became when it became the soviet union there was a very clear statement that we don't want to play your international reindeer games because i mean this is bourgeois i mean why would we why would we possibly do that and in fact if anything there was this sense that um that in participating in these games it's it's just um you're getting caught in the web of the imperialist aims of the West. And, I mean, this is really the kind of language they use.
0: I'm gonna say, I'm I'm not one to often agree with Soviet propaganda. In fact, this may have never happened before, but they kind of had a point with the Olympics up to that point, because it was a very elitist game. It wasn't a mass participation event Absolutely. and getting the best from the working classes around the world. It It often was sports that catered to the wealthy, and wealthy people were the ones who were participating in most of these early, and I mean early, the first fifty years of of the Olympics. So they weren't entirely wrong about that part of it at the time.
1: absolutely. I mean, first of all, you there you were not allowed to be a professional athlete, which will which will get really interesting, and I'll, I'll talk about this more in a moment. But uh, you were not allowed to be a professional athlete. And participate in the Olympics. And I mean, this created this incredibly elitist type of uh, participation in sports. I mean, and and the way it, I mean, there there were even some sports where there was uh, some, um, for example, crew clubs did not allow workers to become members because they were workers. And the idea here was you're just supposed to have the people who are we're dedicating themselves to for the love of the sport but we don't want to have the riffraff coming in too. Mm. And th- there there was this sense of yes, you don't want to have uh, professionals because really that's just going to that's going to cheapen the sport. This right. should just be the people who are doing it purely because they
0: love so it. So when did the Soviets turn around their thinking and kind of make that shift to let's take advantage of this?
1: Exactly. Okay, so the Soviet Union had been fairly insulated until World War II. And during World War II, I mean the, the Soviet Union shows itself to be strong. It shows itself to be essential to defeating fascism. And it's now it wants to it wants a seat at the table. And Stalin is now thinking of: look, I want I want propaganda out here. I want something that drums up patriotism at home and shows the world just how outstanding the communist system is. And so you know you see this in every every area in the the Soviet Union. I mean, you've got them. Uh, you got uh, Stalin pushing for, to create the world's largest steel plant, mm-hmm. the world's mm-hmm. biggest airplane. Mm-hmm. He want, you know challenge the United States in the space race, and Stalin wants to show the world that the Soviet people are faster and stronger than anybody in the West. And so what's on top of just showing the um, just how outstanding the soviet communist way is it's also now that we've got the cold war kicking into high gear sports become a way of defeating the enemy without actually having to to fight a bloody war well so stalin and the soviet leaders start thinking about participating in international sports but they they have two potential impediments in front of them the first relates to what you just brought up about uh, amateurism to participate in international competitions uh, most participants have to be amateurs, mm-hmm. and the Soviet athletes weren't um in part there were there was some professionalization of sports leagues um just in terms of uh, clubs paying their players and, and basically having um trying to get the best players. but also the Soviet government was actually uh, encouraging its athletes to succeed by giving them bonuses if you you know if you win a, if you get a gold medal in some sport right you get a bonus. If you set a world record, you get a bonus.
0: And I'm guessing the International Olympic Committee, IOC at the time, did have rules against this and and at least tried to enforce them?
1: Exactly. You cannot do that. You cannot get paid for your sport. Um, On top of that, I mean, the the Soviets came up with some clever ways around this where they... um, A lot of their best athletes were officially in the military or security forces, so they would join, for example, the Army team in in fill-in-the-blank. Similar things with trade unions. Trade unions would have their own sports clubs, and they would pay their athletes as workers, but they were really paying them to be athletes. So the the world knew this was going on, and the IOC really wanted to globalize the Olympics. And just said, okay, the the Soviets say they're not paying their athletes. And we see that okay, maybe they're paying people to be in the military, but that's okay. And essentially they're just willing to go along with the idea. So so uh, so The Soviets, in this way, get past the first impediment. They're able now to participate, but there's a second impediment that the the Soviet leaders are thinking about, and that is it's only you could it's only good propaganda for the Soviets if they actually win, and Stalin's really scared that the athletes are going to lose, Oops. and so one thing he does is he throws a ton of resources into uh, the country's athletic programs, but he actually says. We will not compete internationally unless we are likely to win. And so the leaders in the Soviet Union pull in coaches. They pull in the leaders of the. They actually have what's called a sports committee, a Soviet sports committee. And They make people come in and say, "Do you promise that you will win?"
0: And if That's they a pledge to make, isn't it when you, yes, when you haven't been competing internationally <laughs> and you don't even know if you can? Yes, exactly. And so if they said
1: yes, then. The Soviets would say, okay, you can go, but then they would fire the head if the, the team would lose. If, the the say, the sports bureaucrat or the coach would say, no, I can't guarantee, because who can guarantee that sort of thing? The, the leaders would say, okay, well, you can't go. So this is kind of tricky for a little bit. Well, and the, the Soviets send a delegation to the 48 Games. They see, okay, look, I think we can be competitive. So they say, okay, we're going to send... Athletes to the 52 Summer Olympics in Helsinki. The Soviets perform really well in the Olympics right off the bat. But okay, here's here's the thing they win the second largest number of medals. And that is shameful to the leaders. Not good enough for Um, Stalin. Not good enough. And so the leaders are really displeased. The United States has more medals. What was most upsetting to the Soviets in in those games, even more than um, taking second place in the total number of medals. In 1948, Yugoslavia had been part of the Soviet sphere, um, but had broken away from the Soviets. I mean, it remained communist, but broken away from the Soviets in 48. So in the 52 games, uh, the, the Soviets play Yugoslavia in soccer, and Yugoslavia wins. And the Soviet leadership is enraged. I mean, we we start getting the, we get uh, Beria, the head of the security forces in the Soviet Union, chewing out uh, sports leaders. And the Soviet government actually disbands the Central Army Soccer Club that had sent most of the players to the Olympics because of this failure. However, the Soviet Union then, quote unquote, writes the ship, and from after 52, just dominates the Olympics, typically winning more medals than any other country.
0: Now, a big part of that is what I think you mentioned earlier, which is they said, if we're going to compete internationally, and if we would lose face uh, by losing, we're going to invest a lot in this. A lot. So they put the resources into it and prioritized this in a way in, in order to take advantage of the the propaganda value.
1: Absolutely. They, I mean, they, they uh, were very good at finding kids who right. were good at sports and started training them at a young age sure. um, they they absolutely centralized a lot of what they were doing or found you know organizations that could help with the centralization of the right. sports um, okay. but throughout it all, and they trained, they, I mean, one of the big things was, it was a very Marxist notion of you put in, okay, if we put in more inputs, we get more output. And so they just made their athletes work incredibly hard okay. and they found great success.
0: Now that didn't prevent some embarrassments, some, um, uh, some conflicts. Uh, you already mentioned the tension between the Soviet team and the Yugoslav team in, in soccer. But in 1952 and then in 1956, there were some, some prominent issues that came up. In 52, I think it was with a, a Czechoslovakian athlete. And then in 1956, the uh, was it water polo and, and the Hungarian wow. team? So talk through those two instances and what they reveal about the, the tensions within the, the Soviet bloc itself.
1: Yeah, I mean you're 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 coming to me with some of my favorite stuff. I mean, I you know, as you, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, I started out as a Japan scholar. Um and as I started learning more about this incredible the incredible intersection of sports and and politics over the years, I was blown away by the number of times the country of Czechoslovakia made an appearance in the stories I came across. Hmm. I mean, and, and Czechoslovakia is really, it's, it's stunning the number of ways that, I mean, it's a pretty small country. It was a small country. Hmm. It's now broken into two different countries, Czech Republic and Slovakia, but it was about 15 million people. Um, it was a country that tended to be forgotten by the rest of the world. It was, I mean, it was the rest of the world gave it up with the Munich agreement in 1938 in part because they just, you know, um, Chamberlain, uh, the prime minister of Britain at the time said, you know, nobody cares about, nobody thinks about this place. Well, Czechoslovakia in 1948, um, had carried out a communist coup and that was backed by the Soviets. And so became a repressive, horribly repressive communist regime. Uh, they, you know, Uh, All private property was, you know, nabbed by the government. Uh, You couldn't travel freely. You certainly were in anything you said uh, somebody was going to hear and you could be imprisoned for what you said. Uh, People were, um, there were, there were show trials in which innocent people um, ended up ultimately being executed for things they had never done. So. In the middle all of all of this, though, you get some incredible athletes, and the greatest athlete in the country was a guy by the name of Emil Zatopek, who is uh, considered one of the greatest uh, runners of all time. Some people hold him up still as the greatest middle distance runner of all time, and he he was this little guy. I mean, he was a skinny guy, and he would he his. Form looked awful; like he was about to collapse at any moment. His face—he looked—he looked looked miserable. He looked like he was going to die. His face was just in this horrible grimace. Well, he was such a dominant runner, and in the forty-eight games, he had won the ten thousand meters, and uh, he had, I believe, come in silver, gotten the silver in the five thousand. And he was also, though, a deeply committed communist. He was in the army and believed deeply in what the government. Uh, Was doing. He thought that communism was a good thing because it was inherently fair. It was egalitarian. It created a chance for everybody. It was humane, in his words. Okay, well, he believed all this, but also he had this great I mean, with those words, you can also get a sense that he had this great sense of fairness. So in 1952, Czechoslovakia had made a point of really punishing anybody whose family pushed back against the regime. And so in 1952, there's a gentleman by the name in Czechoslovakia, by the name of Stanislav Jungwirth, who had won uh, the Czechoslovakia's 1500 meter track championship. So he qualified for the Olympics. But because his father sat in prison uh, you know, for political dissidents, um, Jungwirth was not permitted to go to the Games. And Zatopek said, this is ridiculous. He's a great runner. He should get to go to the Games. And he refuses, he meaning Zadupak, uh, the, the great hero in Czechoslovakia, refuses to get on the airplane to go to the 1952 Helsinki Olympic. He says, I'm only going if Jungworth gets to go. Well, okay, so the Czechoslovak officials blink. They agree to send both of these gentlemen. But at the same time this is all going on, there's a document that goes to the... Uh, the defense minister of the country. It goes to the inbox of the defense minister that the document is proposing the exemplary punishment of Emil Zadupek. In other words, mm. for standing up to the regime, he may ultimately get imprisoned and possibly sent to something like the uranium mines.
0: And is all of this is, is all of this known at the time? At the time,
1: Zadupek knew he might be in trouble. Now, he didn't know that this document had made its way through the system. Um, He knew, though, that he was taking a risk in doing this. Um, He didn't know necessarily just how bad it would be. So Zotopec goes off to the Olympics. He knows he he doesn't have a sense, though. I better do really well in these Olympics because people are going to be unhappy with me, and I don't know what they will do to me when I get back he proceeds to have about the greatest eight days an athlete has ever had in any sport anywhere ever. He, um, he wins the 10,000 meters, which is typically his best event very easily. He wins the 5,000 meters, which is it's a little shorter and so a little tougher for him. But he, it's, 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 this is for people who are interested in watching such things. Go to YouTube and watch Zadupek 5,000 meters. It's one of the great races you'll ever see where, you know, he's falling apart near the end, three guys pass him, and then son, somehow, it, with this horrible run and grimace, he, he wins the whole thing. But, okay, so this is, this is all well and good. But he also says, you know, I, I'm a little worried here. Um, I, I, really, I, I really need to do well in these Olympics. Um, so he's never won, he's never run a marathon before, but he says, okay, you know, I run a lot. Why don't I run the marathon
0: too? <laughs> he, just, he just jumps in.
1: And so he just, yeah, he just said, Can I, can I, can I do this, please? Can I can I join you guys? And there's this hilarious story. He at the start of the, the marathon, he he figures out who the likely uh, lead is gonna be, the, the, the likely you know, front runner. And he goes up to the guy and says, Hello, I am Zadupak. <laughs> and basically the idea is he's gonna stick close to him. And the guy's gonna you know, keep away from me. And this this other runner ends up running ahead of Zatopek early on, and about halfway through the race, Zatopek runs up to him and says, "Are you? Are, is this too fast?" And the other guy says, "No, no, it's too slow," and runs up ahead and wants to get away from him. Well, the guy ends up, you know, collapse. He doesn't make it, wow. and Zatopek ends up setting the Olympic record in the event, wins by two minutes. As as he enters the Olympic stadium, it's one of these incredible moments where. 70,000 people in the stadium take to their feet and start chanting Zatopek, Zatopek. And Zatopek wins and well his wife uh, Donna had was is was the winner in the javelin. Oh. And so there's this incredible moment right after he wins where the two of them kiss it becomes this iconic photo and well, the document um, about the you know Zadupek punishment gets torn up. We never it never sees the light of day, and um, so he ends up getting named master of sport, which basically promises to pay him forever uh, for his his great performance. I will say, by the way, that ends up getting undercut later on in 1968 when he pushes for liberalization in Czechoslovakia and finds that he is no longer so much a master of of sport and actually has to start digging latrines and is pushed off into
0: the countryside. Oh, that's that's not so good. Um, Let's talk about blood. We haven't talked about a bloody clash at the Olympics. And we'll get to unfortunately, uh, not to make light of it. We'll we'll talk about blood at the Olympics in other contexts like 1972 and 1996. But in, in a sporting event itself, having geopolitics play out in the swimming pool, what happened in 56?
1: So 1956, these are the Melbourne Olympics, so in Australia, um, not, I mean, very close. Well, I, and I should add, okay, so the Soviet Union controlled all sorts of countries um, in the Eastern Bloc, one of them being Hungary. And in 1956, there was a mini revolution where briefly uh, the Hungarians threw off the yoke of the hardcore um, Soviet leaning leaders. And and this is, you know, this is around the time that you've got Khrushchev in the Soviet Union pushing for what was called de-Stalinization. You know, saying that the the years of Stalin had been terrible, and we really shouldn't have been doing the horrible things that had occurred then. So, you get a sense in places like Hungary that you know maybe we have a little room to move in now. Maybe things aren't going to be quite as strict as before. So, as Hungary is you know pr- is pushing, you've got students in the streets uh, to, and, and and you do have a change in leadership where you have. Um, more um, uh, more of a liberalizing group coming in, liberalizing against the oppressive rule, um, you have this mini revolution, and the Soviets ultimately say, no, actually, you, we, this is going to be dangerous. We don't want our satellites disappearing from our control. Soviets send in tanks and troops and crush the whole thing, killing substantial numbers of people. And this is right before the Olympics. And I I, just a a quick word that the 1956 games were the the games with the first real substantial boycotts that I know of. You had uh, you had the Netherlands, Spain and Switzerland all boycotting the games because of the invasion of Hungary. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also have China boycotting because the IOC, the International Olympic Committee decides to include Taiwan And you also have Egypt, Iraq, and Lebanon boycotting the games because of uh, France and Israel and the UK Suez Crisis. Exactly. So you're actually getting a whole lot. Exactly. Well, in the, I mean, traditionally, um, one of the world's great water powers in terms of sport was Hungary. Hungary, uh, people talk about all the, the wonderful pools all across Hungary. Uh, in particular, in Budapest, and and uh, I mean just and the I've never been to Budapest. It's one of my dreams to go there. I've heard it's one of the truly stunning cities. The, the the pictures of the pools are stunning. Hungary was brilliant in swimming and truly one of the great powers in water polo, and had actually helped the Soviet Union get up to speed in water polo. Well, with the invasion in 1956, uh, Hungary was the clear favorite, uh, but um, it wasn't clear that they would get to go to the Olympics. And I say favorite in Waterpool. Um Ultimately, at the last second, they get to go. And sure enough, they end up facing off against the Soviet Union in the second to last game, in the qualifier to go to the gold medal game. And... Um, one thing the Hungarians were doing is because of the revolution, they hadn't been able to tr- to train much over the time leading up to the games. They had been, you know, kind of put into a safe location. And so they're in terrible shape. Um, so part of what they do is they decide that they're going to try and get the Soviet players exhausted. And so they are beating up on the Soviet players and basically talking a lot of trash. And the Soviets are getting really frustrated with them and fighting back. And uh, the Hungarians are winning the game fairly handily. And finally, a Soviet player snaps. Leaps, I mean, these guys are such extraordinary um, athletes in the pool. Leap is, of course, an exaggeration, but he flies high in the air in the water and brings his elbow down on the face of the star Hungarian player. And opening a huge gash on his face, and there's there's blood literally in the water. There are little pink, you know, spots. And the, you know, people have tried to tell the story now. You know, the pool was entirely red at this point, you know. But I mean, there were there were pink spots. The 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 guy Irvin Zador gets out of the pool, and he's dripping blood. And people in the crowd are enraged. They are ready to attack the Soviet players, hmm. and. Um, Hungary, you know, wins the game. Zador can't play the final, which actually harms Hungary's chances. But Hungary wins the gold medal. Um, but this is the the number one thing people remember of these games is the blood in the water game. And you know, th- it wasn't entirely political, but there was a strong element of it sure. for sure. And you end up getting a bunch of Hungarian players defecting once the games are over uh, to the West. They never want to return to Hungary. Got it.
0: Now we have these tensions between countries and the de facto politicization of the games in various ways, but that's not what the IOC clearly wants. That's not what the people who are in charge of the overall effort want. Now, by now, I presume Pierre de Coubertin, sorry, Baron Pierre de Coubertin is no, yes, longer, yes, the important. Yeah, he's no longer running things uh, by the 50s, but there, there is someone, Avery, Brundage, who, who is a key person in Olympic history as well. And he had very firm views on politics and how they should not play a role in anything to do with the Olympics. Uh, explain that a bit here. Absolutely. So Avery
1: Brundage, um, I tell my students, Avery Brundage is probably the most important person ever when it comes to the Olympics. Um, and, I introduce him in the very first lecture I give in my class on politics and sports. And he's, I continue to talk about him until about 80% of the way through the class. He, um, he <laughs> was a central figure in the Olympics from 1936 through 1972. So he was the dominant figure throughout that period. Wow. And he was born, he's an American, uh, born in 1887, and he actually competed in the 1912 Summer Olympics. He participated in the pentathlon and decathlon. He didn't win any medals. Both of those events were won by his teammate, Jim Thorpe, who then, you know, the Native American, right. who um, who had his medals stripped because he had played a little bit of semi-professional baseball ah, a few years earlier. Violating the amateur rule. Violating the amateur rule. Mm. Avery Brundage believed deeply in sports, and he believed deeply in keeping sports uh, the politics out of the sports. He thought that fundamentally, uh, sports could do so much good for the world. He 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 had kind of a gross elitist notion of sports, but he also had you know he had a real sense that sports actually brings people together. And, I, I, you know, that's, that part is really a, a really lovely notion. I mean, it's, it's really kind of a beautiful thing. It's a way of bringing people together. He, um, well, he was heavily involved in the 1936 uh, decision by the United States not to boycott the Olympics. Um, he had been at the center of the leadership of the American Olympic Committee And in fact, 1936, people don't know how close to boycotting those games we actually came. Um, So there was a 1935 Gallup poll in which 43% of Americans actually favored boycotting the Olympics,
0: which is a stunning number. It's also stunning. (laughs) They even polled for that kind of thing back then. It shows that the Olympics were taking on some importance to the American people. Absolutely. People cared about that.
1: Well, Brundage... Uh, Brundage was noted for strong-arming his way into all sorts of things. Um, he really, he, he was um, very much a dictator with anybody underneath him. He was very quick to, for example, in, on the, on the um, ship to the 1936 Olympics, there was a female athlete who, who he felt was partying too much, so he kicked her off the team. She had been drinking too much on the, on the boat, oh. and so he said, you're off, you're off the team. Um, Well, he led the push to avoid the boycott. And his argument, he actually, he he made a lot of sense in a lot of this. I mean, for one thing, he believed politics should be out of sports, that this is fundamentally about sports. Uh, he, um, He made an exceptionally reasonable point when he said at one, uh, it, when he was confronted with um, the issue of African American athletes and the games, he actually said there was a bit of hypocrisy when it comes to the issue uh, relating to Black athletes. He said uh, something to the effect of you know, uh, these Black athletes don't fear in Germany the discrimination they encounter in the American Southern states. So in part he's yeah. he's kind of raising yeah. this point. You know, look, you know, <laughs> you know, it's sort of the the whole glass houses thing. You know, perhaps we shouldn't be throwing stones. Okay, so he really did believe all this stuff. Uh, I will add, however, he owned a construction company that was all set to build the new German embassy in Washington D.C. D. after the nineteen thirty six Olympics. Mm. He also, and he, um, if you look at the. Reading material he liked to peruse. There was a heavily anti Semitic bent. Mm. Um, and he went to Germany in 1934, sort of on a fact finding mission. Mm-hmm. He kind of walks around, meets with leaders in Germany then, and he comes back and he says, Oh, nothing bad's being done to the Jews. Oof. Um, yeah. So uh, he's tricky on this front. So throughout, he's always pushed, We must hold the games, we must hold the games, we must hold the games. Along the way, though, um, and, and so one of the strongest statements he ever made was in 1956, um, when he talked very much about, you know, as people were talking about boycotting, um, those, um, those games, um, he 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 kind of raised the point about the whole politics thing. I mean, you know, about this issue of are we really going to cancel everything every time there's a problem with politics? And so and he actually says very specifically, look, we live in this imperfect world. If participation in sport is to be stopped every time the politicians violate the laws of humanity, there will never be any international contests. Mm. Is it not better to try and expand the sportsmanship of the athletic field into other areas? I mean, this is... Yeah. That's a good point. Yep, yep. It's a very reasonable point. Now, where it gets kind of sketchy, I mean, I, I think he, he's—he's—we can—we can agree with this one. What gets kind of sketchy is in certain Olympics, you have the organizers of the games, perhaps the host city, actually carrying out atrocities in order to be able to successfully host the games, right? So this is where the blood is being spilled for the
0: sake of the, the athletes. I, That's different. And this was, this was beyond 1956 then, but he, he had made that claim. And then it was only, a, what, a decade later in 1968, Mexico City, which was probably the worst up to that point security situation facing in Olympic Games, right? Weren't there Absolutely. crazy protests and shooting into crowds before the Games started?
1: There's a there's a devastating story from 1968 in which uh, there were students protesting in Mexico City. Not they weren't protesting the Olympics. They were protesting what was essentially oppressive behavior by the government, um, you know, things involving you know freedom of speech and control over the university. But I mean, at its core, they were protesting, uh, you know, a, a repressive regime. The regime sent. In the police. We're talking about there was a demonstration by students. This is very close to the time of the Olympics. There are helicopters flying overhead. There are snipers. There are security officials coming in, beating and shooting students. So hundreds of students end up getting killed here. And those, for the sake of the games, fundamentally, the, the Mexican government, talk, the Mexican president, talked about how we're not going to let a bunch of students ruin our games. And there was there was not serious discussion given to halting the games as a result of, of this uh, you know, atrocity. Again, this was being done for the sake of the games. It's one thing to keep politics out, but it's another to inject right, you know, right. violence for the sake of it. So Brundage, of course, throughout this doesn't want anybody boycotting, doesn't want anybody protesting. In 1968, uh, the the African-American athletes hated Brundage. Mm-hmm. They thought about boycotting the games, and one of their demands was actually, uh, we want Brundage out as president of the IOC. He had, after his bringing the United States to the 36 games and calling off and making sure there was no boycott, he actually um, became a, a major official within the IOC mm. and eventually becomes president. He... Um, he wants no part of people boycotting in 1968, and he continues to be the head in 1972. Mm-hmm. And people tend to think that he handled what was an atrocity in those games yeah. very poorly as well. well let's um, all for the sake of including the po- all for the sake of keeping politics out of
0: sports. Yeah, I want to I want to touch on Munich in '72 in a minute, but let's close out '68 mm-hmm. first because you did have the famous protest by the Black American athletes. Um, Yeah. And the backlash that came from that with people saying, uh, keep politics out of sports. What are you doing that people didn't like that? But you've written about a different display in 68, which didn't get doesn't get as much attention now, but actually shows the hypocrisy on the part of some people who claim politics should be kept out of sports because people had a very different reaction to a different display. Tell that story.
1: Exactly. Well, just for a little backstory first, I mean, so in the lead up to the 68 games, a lot of black athletes, a lot of African-American athletes specifically, people from the United States, were considering boycotting the Olympics. Um, they ultimately didn't do so with with, a, with uh, significant exceptions. Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then Lou Alcindor actually chose not to... I mean, he was the best amateur basketball player in the world. He chose not to uh, try out for the U.S. team um, because of issues of racial discrimination. He wanted no part of the 68 games. Um, but aside from you know a small number of exceptions, for the most part, the top athletes all decide to go to the games from the United States. But a number of black athletes say, we we need to take a stand in some way. And so when Tommy Smith who is one of the leaders of the movement, wins the gold medal in the 200-meter dash, and John Carlos, another American, uh, takes the bronze. The two of them go on the medal podium as the national anthem is played, and they each wear a black glove that they hold to the air with a black fist. Well, Brundage immediately, and again, these athletes refer to Brundage as Slavery Avery. Um, They despise him so much. And Brundage calls the U.S. Olympic Committee and says, if you do not send, in his words, those boys home, uh, I will suspend your entire team. And so next thing you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos are on a plane back to the U.S. and are forever banned from the Olympics. And... So, so the, you know, and there's um, a lot of white America found what they did disgusting. Brent Musburger, the famous um, sportscaster, has um, said some pretty um, powerful and negative things about what they did, referring to them as black stormtroopers at the time. Ooh. Well, there was a real split within America at the time. Yeah, there yeah. was there was a lot, a lot of a, a lot of whites were very uncomfortable with what Smith and Carlos had done. Um, and in part, their their argument was you don't, you, on the medal podium, you, stay, you keep absolute perfect decorum. Decorum is the key. And so many people felt that was exactly right. On the medal podium, you don't inject politics, you behave perfectly. Mm-hmm. Well, this is 1968 and the world is going crazy at this time. Um, it's it's you know one of the more eventful years in world history. And in 1968, I had talked about earlier about Czechoslovakia. For me, everything always comes back to Czechoslovakia. And in, che- in Czechoslovakia, uh, there had actually been a liberalization movement. The, the the country was becoming, was really pushing back against a lot of oppressive policies. Mm-hmm. And one of the people who was especially outspoken in favor of the government's moves toward liberalization was the world's greatest gymnast, a a little little blonde Czechoslovak woman named Vera Czeslovska. She was really the first really charismatic gymnast. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, think Mm -hmm. of... Think of, uh, you know, Simone Biles back in in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Czeslowska had been the greatest gymnast in the 64 Olympics. Uh, She earned tens when people didn't earn tens. She was absolutely brilliant. She was also outspokenly in favor of the liberalization moves in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. Well, in the summer, uh, just about two months before the Olympics, the Soviets of 1968, the Soviets say, we can't allow this liberalization. Uh, Czechoslovakia is getting out of control. We need to bring it back into step. And so the Soviets send in 500,000 troops, uh, thousands of tanks, and take over the country. And Chaslovska, you know, having been outspoken politically, is scared. And she goes and hides in the countryside, wondering, am I going to get to go to the Olympics? Now she's in the countryside. And so she doesn't have a lot of ways to train. So she does. Um, it, I mean, I, I think you once referred to this as "think of think of Rocky from Rocky IV right. training out in the wilderness." Yep. I think that's exactly right. She's swinging on tree branches. Uh, she's walking across. You know, she's she's practicing the balance beam, except it's it's a tree limb. Um, you know, she's shoveling coal to keep up the calluses on her hands, and she ultimately does get to go to the Olympics, and she is the absolute story of the olympics in terms of her incredible performance and she essentially wins everything except there's a there's a little bit of a catch um on the balance beam uh there was some questionable judging you know intelligent people can disagree on this Mm. she felt that she was robbed and so she got the silver medal Mm. and so a soviet gymnast got the gold um On the uh, floor exercise, Choslovska performed brilliantly at the last second, right before medals were uh, allocated, the judges said, oh, you know what? We made a mistake earlier, and in fact, there's a Soviet gymnast who should be tied with you for the gold medal. Hmm. So in each case, Hmm. Choslovska goes up to the medal stand, and at some point during that receiving of medals, the Soviet anthem is played. for, for the gold medal winning Soviet. And in each case, Chaslavska turns her head down and to the side away from the Soviet flag. It, people knew what was going on. Uh, there was a quick comment by Jim McKay, the ABC analyst at the time, of this is no accident. Mm-hmm. So this was a very clear stand mm-hmm. on the medal podium right. that she was taking. And she gets in no trouble whatsoever. It, it, at the Olympics. And in fact, if anything, there's a survey right afterwards that se- shows that she is the second most popular woman in the world be- be- behind Jackie Kennedy. Wow. So what- of course, Chaslavska then goes home uh-huh. and then gets in massive trouble mm-hmm. for her outspoken political stances, and she actually is no longer able to travel. Mm. She's kind of kicked out of the gymnastics world, and she ends up having difficulty getting work.
0: Now, briefly, there's another story. It's not Olympics related, but uh, around this time, the tension between the Soviet Union and the Czechoslovakians plays out on the ice rink as well. Uh, Give us just the, the quickest outline of that and how that actually is one of the most compelling sports and politics stories out there.
1: This is my all-time favorite one. Um and this is what I'm actually writing a book on right now is the way hockey in Czechoslovakia really had the politics and the sports completely overlap with one another. And in particular, I um I've talked to uh, there, there's there's one family that was heavily involved in this. So there was uh, there were two brothers, Yaroslav and Yiji, and they come from this little tiny town and they have this best friend from the town and the three of them are the greatest, you know, three of the greatest hockey players in the country. And they all hated the communists. Um, at a young age, Yaroslav and um, uh father had lost his butcher shop to the communists. So they hated, from from the age of six, mm. they loathed the communists. Well, 1968 comes, the Soviets invade these men are furious, but they're hockey players, and they are playing in a sport where the greatest, team in, the greatest national team in the world is the Soviet Union. The people of Czechoslovakia at this point are miserable. They've been invaded. They feel helpless, like there's nothing they can do. And well, the World Hockey Championships were supposed to be held early in um, 1969, so seven months after the invasion... The, the hockey championships are supposed to be held in Prague, but they get moved because there's far too much uh, instability f- flowing from the Soviets invading. So they move the games, the, the championships, to, um, to Stockholm, Sweden. And they, uh, so they have these matches where they know they're going to play the, the Soviets. And back home, everybody is saying, look, we have no freedoms anymore. Right. And in fact, they had believed that before they hadn't even been allowed to, to win against the Soviets. They believed that they were forced to lose. That's what the people mm-hmm. thought. They thought that their players were throwing the games. Mm-hmm. And they thought, you know, we, ha- we need some sign that we have something that's still ours, some sort of freedom that we actually have. And, and people in Czechoslovakia were obsessed with hockey. So... These guys go off to Stockholm and a bunch of them so on the Czechoslovak jerseys they have a, a communist star and these guys take black tape and tape over the communist star hmm. and to indicate we hate communism and most of all we hate the soviets and they go and they defeat the soviets twice And as the Swedish crowd is chanting the name of the Czechoslovak leader over and over, the leader who had been, who's ultimately forced out of power by the Soviets. And after these victories, the people at home take to the streets. They're so thrilled by the victory. People who don't even care about hockey, they take to the streets. And next thing you know, there there are half a million of them in the streets. Mm -hmm. And they, they start attacking all things Soviet, including the Soviet airline office. It's this
0: incredible moment where sports actually shapes the people back and home. And didn't didn't you find that it inspired a whole generation of Czechoslovakian athletes including NHL players even Martina Navratilova?
1: It so I the the title of my book is Freedom to Win mm. and the reason for that title is I interviewed Martina Navratilova not about her tennis career but about these hockey matches. And I said, you know, what did you think about them? And she said, they meant everything to us. She was oh. she was about 12, 13 years old at the time. Yeah. Um, and she remembers vividly watching the games on TV and losing her mind over them. Mm-hmm. Um, and her family was going crazy. And they felt so much tension. And when the Soviet men lost, when the Czechoslovaks won, she said, it meant everything to us. It gave us hope. It gave us the sense that we had the freedom to win. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, this powerful image that there was something still that the Soviets couldn't take away. from Right,
0: them. right. Well, it wasn't that much uh, later when the 72 Olympics came around and we had the perhaps the ultimate tragedy at an Olympic Games. Most people know the story of the Palestinian Black September uh, attack on the Israeli athletes. Um, but could you give us just a sketch of the, the security situation that led to that and how the Olympic Games were, were changed as a result?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the security situation was was typically quite lax. Uh, If you go way back, I mean, there was this incredible video footage of a woman approaching Hitler in the 19, I believe it was at the swimming pool in the 1936 games, and she suddenly snaps his picture. Um, you know, you could get that, you know, a matter of feet away from him. So going back there,
0: see that, that security was surprised me too much because, um, I, I remember seeing in one of the Indiana Jones movies that Indiana Jones got face to face with, with Adolf Hitler. So I know it's possible.
1: It, exactly. And it, I believe that was at the swimming pool in 36. So yeah, I'm sure that, that there was, that was key. Um, in, you added an extra element in 1972, uh, which was in Munich, and the Germans were desperate to, to essentially try to atone for what they had done with World War II, with the Holocaust, with the Nazis, all of it and most of all the germans wanted to the, the or the west germans i should say at the time wanted to create the image of look we're we're not we're not those people anymore we are not a security state and so they had lots of you know very pleasant looking police walking around with no you know with, with no weapons they were more you know sort of information people you know they were helpful they that you could have them go to a kiosk and so they were completely and they were completely ill-prepared, in part also just by West German law that prevented the use of security forces in a lot of situations. They were ill-prepared for any sort of action that involved actually having to pull out guns and stop people. And so as a result of mm-hmm. that, the um, the Black September group easily scaled the fence to the Olympic mm-hmm. Village. I, I believe they even, if I remember this right, they even... Uh, worked with some East German athletes each who, who were you know, out late and having a good time. They helped each other climb over the fence. Mm. Um, so there, there was essentially no security. And so it was very easy then both for the Black September group to get in uh, to the, the Olympic village, to get to the Israeli athletes, but also made it incredibly difficult to know what to do, you know, in terms of if you wanted to try and storm them mm. and and you know break get the hostages free. At that point, they had taken these these Israeli athletes hostage.
0: Right, and in the games since then, of course, security now is a paramount concern, and you know bidding on the Olympics includes a security plan, and exactly. things have changed dramatically.
1: Uh, uh, but by, by the way, just one one quick addition on the seventy two yeah. thing um that just highlights just what is so powerful about holding Olympics um you know so so countries had used the games before mm. to try and you know build you know try and build uh highlight the achievements of those countries mm. uh, so Germany Mexico being examples you also had groups like you know Tommy Smith and and John Carlos in 68 highlighting mm. you know injustice we really had this with the terrorists in 72. I mean, they explicitly, they, they were sort of apologetic for ruining the games, yeah. but they said, look, what were you we supposed to do? You offered us a showcase <laughs> that we can, we can show our possibility to, they said, millions and even billions of people. Right. And it was thanks to this that the name Palestine was repeated all over the world. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they really took advantage of that fact.
0: We have a couple of other stories I, I want to get to in our time that we have. You've talked a lot about boycotts and attempted boycotts or possible boycotts, and the stories of the the American boycott of the Moscow Games in nineteen eighty and the nineteen eighty four Los Angeles Games. Pretty straightforward, you know, Cold War politics, right. uh, invasion of Afghanistan, and revenge. Um, but 1976 had an interesting boycott angle that tends to be forgotten because of them. What's the, what's the story with the Montreal Olympics?
1: Yeah, so the 76 Olympic boycott, I mean, it's the one that nobody knows, um, despite the fact that it had a large number of countries, 28 countries boycotted the 1976 Olympics. And the um, the sense immediately afterwards was that the boycott didn't have a clear effect but i I think this actually highlights important subtle ways that boycotts can really impact things that it doesn't you, you don't for example if people had pulled out of the 36 games it's not like immediately hitler and the nazis would have said you know what you're right we need to be nicer to jews um things are subtler they take longer so in 19 1976 the boycott was directly related to the country of South Africa. So South Africa's apartheid you know, kept the black majority separated, separate from the white minority and put the black majority in, in a horrible, I mean, just faced terrible discrimination. So over time, South Africa, beginning in 1964, was banned from the Olympics and all sorts of international competition. Well, Brundage, by the way, Avery Brundage, wanted to include South Africa, repeatedly wanted to include South Africa in the Olympics. Of course he did. And in 1976, New Zealand's rugby team, so New Zealand, one of the great rugby powers of the world, and South Africa, which adored rugby, um, New Zealand's rugby team ignored an embargo on competing in sports in South Africa. New Zealand sent a team to compete with the South African rugby team. So just days before the 1976 Olympics opening ceremony, 28 African countries announced that they were boycotting the games to protest the inclusion of New Zealand of all countries. You know, wow. it's, it's funny, it's you the don't think of people- transitive theory of boycotting. <laughs> exactly. So it, as I said before, in a lot of ways, it's seen as a failure. There, there wasn't a major effect at the time, but it really did change um, international consciousness about- Apartheid. It really raised it, it really um, raised the anti-apartheid movements profile um, lots of international interest um, and so you get in 1977 the British Commonwealth agreed to discourage contact and competition between their athletes and sports organizations, teams and individuals from South Africa and I mean this is a year after the boycott. Um, it also seemed to affect, South, uh, affect New Zealand. So the South African rugby team toured New Zealand in 1981, and there were widespread, I mean, just really intense protests by New Zealanders throughout. And so New Zealand joined the athletic boycott of South Africa then as well.
0: So this boycott was really very powerful. And actually effective in, in ways actually, that even they might not It appears expected. effective. Uh, yes. it's, it's hard to talk about Olympic history without mentioning, especially its intersection with international politics, without mentioning the miracle on ice in 1980, the U.S. Uh, triumph over the, so the U.S. amateurs triumphing over the Soviet, I guess, in quotes, amateurs, but they, right. they weren't even close. Um, what are the interesting parts about that that probably go under the radar for most people?
1: I mean, it really was miraculous. I mean, we, sh- we should highlight that point, first of all. I mean, that the Soviet Union was as good as the best teams in the NHL. I mean, that's how great the team was. And these, the, American, the American team was the youngest American team ever. It was the youngest team in the Olympics. The kids, they were about 22 years old. Um, they were college kids. And this was a period in which the United States was really down. It was 1980. The economy was poor. Jimmy Carter was talking about malaise and crisis of confidence. American hostages had been taken in the U.S. embassy in Iran. As you said, Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan. So it was miraculous then when the Soviet Union lost to the United States in those games. Um, and it 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 gave a real psychological boost to the American people. Now, at the same time, I I point to the nineteen sixty nine story I talked about earlier, in terms of the political perspective. You know that in a sense, what we were talking about in the United States was small potatoes compared to being invaded, and then people actually taking to
0: the streets. Of course, but it was a really extraordinary it's a matter moment of national in the United national States. pride and kind right. of kind of that turn in America whether you agree with the politics or not, but the turn in the eighties from America as defeatist to America as resurgent. And got to say, you know, Al Michaels yelling out, do you believe in miracles is, is one of those cultural moments that, that, that signaled that. Absolutely.
1: It was one of those extraordinary moments. Most of us, you know, who are, I mean, even people who aren't old enough to remember know that that phrase Um, You know, a a couple of funny things about that, though, by the way, Uh, Al Al Michaels, that was um, he got the job announcing at the for ABC Uh um, because he had more experience than anybody else on their high profile network team. He had announced one game of hockey in his life before that one. And so therefore, (laughs) before that. Um, So he got the he got that that job. Um, A couple of funny other things about it, though, was the match against the Soviet Uh Union was played at 5 p.m. on the East Coast on a Friday. Ooh. So there were all these traffic problems. Um, <laughs> they they asked the Soviets, could we play it later, you know, for the sake of television? The Soviets said no. <laughs> um, so the game got tape delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what people forget is the United States still had to beat, had to at least tie Finland in the final match. That wasn't even the final match. Uh. Um, I, I actually um, only... Uh, I couldn't believe this was true. I remember as a kid, I I remember vividly watching the Soviet Union game on tape delay, but I had some vague recollection of being at my friend's house on the Sunday morning of the last game against Finland and watching it in the morning. And I checked recently; the game was played Sunday morning at eleven o'clock on the East Coast. Meaning, I was watching it on the West Coast at eight o'clock in the morning, and it wasn't taped late or anything. Huh. They they just
0: didn't they didn't have the whole system we have today right. of timing sports for prime time. It is it is funny that it was not the quote final match or the match that would alone have won them the gold medal because. It's taken on that importance of the U.S. defeating. It's similar in that way, I think, to the Duke Kentucky basketball game, so (laughs) famous from Christian Leitner's uh, famous shot from Grant Hills Pass. That 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 was not Duke winning the national championship. That was just Duke defeating Kentucky on the way to exactly Um, exactly. A couple of things to to close out on. Uh, One is the issue of amateurs. Uh, Up to this point, the Olympics. Uh, were largely seen as an amateur phenomenon. There were always some issues ranging from the Jim Thorpe story you told to whether Russians were, many Russians were ever actually amateurs. But starting with 1988, some professionals in some sports. And then with 1992, I think if memory serves, that was the year of the dream team, the NBA, all stars going to the Olympics and just decimating the competition. Um, How has that shift from amateurs to professionalization uh, within our lifetimes, how has that affected the perceptions of the teams and affected the politics of sport? This
1: is, I mean, this is a really tricky one. I mean, there there were all sorts of issues before in terms of professionals. I mean, what what do you do if Jim Thorpe was professional in a different sport? What do you do about communist countries? What do you do about athletes on college scholarships? I mean, this is... Really tricky, and so in a way, the fairest thing was just to avoid it and just allow anybody to compete in the Olympics. Um, few things have gone along with this. Um, oh, and I should add one other thing: 1988, there were professional basketball players in the Olympics, just not for the U.S. and the U.S. took the bronze right. that right. year, <laughs> and so not a coincidence that '92 we start seeing the, the the dream team and the professionals coming mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one of the things that People have frequently argued about, in terms of pushing against boycotts, is it's this sense that look, this is the one chance people have. When you when you're an amateur, you got you can't stay an amateur athlete for that long. Um, if you know if you're not getting paid to be an athlete, you have to go and do something else at some point and make some money. And so you frequently hear this this um, call that it is unfair to the athletes to boycott games. Well, with professionals now, you uh, you very much get these people who come back over and over and over and again. And, I, and by the way, I shouldn't. I, some people you just have the sweet spot if you you are perfectly in your prime, and this is the only time you're going to mm-hmm. make it. And I. I, yep. I completely sympathize with yeah. those people. I mean, that's a terrible situation to lose your chance to compete. And this is your one chance. But you see so many people now compete in the Olympics three, four, in some five cases, times. Uh, yeah, in
0: some cases, across decades. Exactly.
1: And um, so in that sense, um, I worry less about boycotts as being unfair to a lot of the athletes. In fact, a lot of these athletes, now that it's professionalized, mm-hmm. The Olympics are just one more professional opportunity for right. them. Um, you right. know, they they're they're getting paid in so many other
0: areas. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I have a vague recollection. A lot of my recollections these days are vague, but I have a vague recollection of us talking maybe many years ago that I said something with full confidence, and you rightly cut me down when I said something like, "Well, <laughs> nineteen seventy-two, you know, change security." You know, for future Olympics, and you nod. and then I say, and of course, nineteen ninety six really was the next ramp up on it. And I think you corrected me and said, no, wait a minute. nineteen ninety two when you have the dream team and you have Michael Jordan, one of the most recognized celebrities in the world, walking around Barcelona, um, security changed then because you actually had protective security around athletes because of potential threats to them because they were so recognized and and perhaps the security, mentality we have now uh, owes a little bit more to 1992 than it does to 1996 and the bombing itself.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, in part, people like Charles Barkley often avoided the whole security thing that he was famous for going out around Barcelona and just partying with the locals. Yes. He, he wanted no part of the security. But the security following and surrounding the Dream Team was a big thing. The Dream Team couldn't go out much because, in part, they were so famous. But also protecting them was absolutely essential. I don't, so I don't know how much, you know, if there was a massive ramp-up in security overall in those games. But there certainly was surrounding certain
0: athletes. Okay. Um- With these games going on in Beijing now, uh, we started by pointing out it's relatively recent. That is, Beijing just hosted in 2008, if memory serves. That's right. And that's a pretty quick turnaround for the same city to host again, at least in in the modern era. And it's a little bit strange because I seem to recall that Beijing, and like every host city, to outbid the competition, you have to promise a lot. You're going to build this... And increasingly, it's going to be, you know, sustainable, and it's going to be good for the economy and good for justice and good for rights of the people. And Beijing promised a lot of that in 2008, didn't deliver on it. And yet it didn't seem to hurt their bid very much, did it? Yeah, that's the part that, um, you know, people talk a lot about,
1: um, you know, being fair to the athletes, not boycotting for, you know, this and that in order to perhaps keep politics out or to take care of the athletes. But this is an interesting case and and sort of a depressing one. Beijing, or China, had promised to improve human rights, to improve the treatment of journalists who who came, that is, not not control them so much, um, to improve the quality of the environment, get rid of the pollution around Beijing. And by 2008, really had none of its promises had been carried through and so if anything it seemed that china learned from th- that experience that we don't have to do anything mm-hmm. there are there there are no repercussions if so and in fact getting the the 1922 winter olympics just underscored that yeah uh, absolutely i'm glad you brought that the, up the
0: other element that's new to some extent we've we've talked about boycotts we've talked about National committees deciding not to go. We've talked about athletes like L Cinder deciding not to go. We've talked about countries not allowing their teams to compete. But this year we have something called a diplomatic boycott, which yeah. which was a new phrase to me. Uh, may, maybe it's happened before, but I didn't I didn't remember one. What do you What do you make of this? The fact that we're going to protest, um, you know. Peng Peng Shui in China is a big issue. Mm -hmm. The tennis star who uh, still unclear exactly how she lost her freedom and to what extent the oppression of the Uyghurs is an issue in China. The issues you just mentioned are an issue in China. But we don't want to keep these athletes from competing. So we're just going to prevent, you know, a few high level officials from going along and cheering them. What do you make of that?
1: I mean, the number one thing I make of it is that people learned a lesson from 1980, when Jimmy Carter uh, had us, the United States, boycott the Moscow Olympics. People were very unhappy about it. Here, there, the, the there's a lot of pointing to this was unfair to the athletes, and it wasn't clear whether it ultimately led to any changes in Moscow's behavior. And so, to this day. I think people always forget about 1976. They forget about 1936, how perhaps we should have boycotted in 36. And instead, they point at 1980 and say, look, this didn't work. And so we want to be able to have our cake and eat it too. And also, ideally, let's not get into a trade war with China.
0: Yeah, understandable. Uh, Yes. There's a lot more (laughs) to take, sure. Well, this has been a, a great survey of the Olympics. Uh, as we're set to start these new, these new games. It's been a great survey of the Olympics and politics and security, Uh, but we won't end there because we end each episode of chatter (laughs) by reaching into the so-called chatterbox and pulling out the question. So let's see what the chatterbox has for you. Oh dear. In what country other than your own would you most like to live and why? Oh my goodness. You only have about 197 choices, so <laughs> you can
1: get uh, I can Actually, this one's pretty easy for mm-hmm. me. Um, I, as I think you know, um, I spent the year of the 2017-18 uh, school year in Spain.
0: Uh, sabbatical
1: year? Um, on my yep. sabbatical year, I, I took my kids, uh, put them in school in Spain, and I lived in a little tiny beach town on the southern coast of Spain. And, um, it was, it was just, it, it was beyond lovely. I mean, first of all, just Spanish culture is, is really beautiful. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a thrilling way to live. I mean, just the ideas of of taking advantage of what life has to offer. But also just being in that spot in Europe, it meant being able to travel all over. And, and as a result of that, I was able to travel uh, repeatedly to the Czech Republic and Slovakia, where I did all sorts of research for my book mm. on um, mm-hmm. on the, the hockey, the political resistance right. in Czechoslovakia. Well, that
0: answer really fits in with uh, one of the themes of this conversation, Ethan, because Like so many Olympic athletes of yore, you just proved you are part of the global bourgeois elite.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It really does sound like that when I talk about living in a beach town in southern Spain. Yes, I'm actually a little embarrassed now. Well, Ethan,
0: it has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Chatter and telling us all about the Olympics. This is delightful. Thank you so much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.